Coming up in this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, Kevin Breitenbach shares his story about an unspoken monster that lives here in Alaska. And Scott ends the phone call with, just call the damn troopers, we're dying out here. And that was the end of the phone call. The Blowhole, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. Well, here at Dark Winter Nights, we are still basking in the glory of our last live event in November. We had about a thousand people in attendance and another collection of wonderful true stories from Alaska. For those of you who were at the event, I want to put you at ease and let you know that my team has insisted that I never play Jump by Van Halen on my guitar during a live show ever again. In fact, they said I can't play the guitar during a Dark Winter Nights show again, period which kind of hurt my feelings a little, but (laughs) I got over it after a few days. (laughs) If you weren't at the event, then you're in luck, because up next is an incredible story that Kevin Breitenbach shared that night. I was very happy with how he told his story, and it's a pleasure to be able to share with you his experience with a fierce and evil force that lives up here in Alaska. Here's Kevin Breitenbach with his story, The Blowhole from our November 19th, 2022 live event in Fairbanks. I moved up here to Alaska about 20 years ago to go to school at UAF. Uh, I came up here with an old Toyota pickup truck, kind of a pair of skis and a mountain bike. And going to school part-time and working part-time, I quickly found out I have no money to use those skis and I have no money to put gas in that truck. So I found myself riding a bike around basically everywhere. Now at this time, I had no love for bikes, but for years up here, I found myself poor and a bike really kind of alleviates that. So years pass by and I find myself riding everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's to work or to school or to Fred Myers. I was on a bike. And a number of years go by and I start hearing of these things, these ultra endurance marathons and you know, winter would come around and it's a surprisingly nice time to ride a bike in the interior of Alaska. So I had no love for riding bikes. I really had no love for racing either, but I found myself kind of heading out and doing these ultra endurance marathons, maybe back in 2008, 2009, fat bikes start coming around and things become more popular. And I really kind of fell into that crowd, that wrong crowd. And I started hearing about this other race. So these were 100-mile races. Now I start hearing there's this other race along the Iditarod Trail called the Iditarod Trail Invitational. And that's not 100 miles. There's a couple different versions of that. There's one that'll go about like 310 miles to the village of McGrath along the Kuskokwim River. And then there's another version of it that goes the full 1,000 miles to Nome. So in 2013 through 2015, I got kind of wrapped up with this race. And I started racing to McGrath. And I found it so cool that I had discovered this 300-mile section of Alaska that I really started to understand. And I realized right then, I want to figure out this other 700 miles on the other end of things. So I did this race for a few years to McGrath. And by about 2017, I realized I really wanted to go to Nome. So I started looking into things to go to Nome. And there's this one section of trail that really stood out. And I had heard from other people about this section of trail, just really right at the very end, really close to Nome, there's this spot called the Blowhole. 
And all I knew was that nobody stops in the blowhole. So let me tell you a little bit story about why nobody stops in the blowhole. 2017 rolls around. I got my family's support to go and do this silly event all the way to Nome. You see, just going to McGrath is like a two or three day commitment. Going all the way to Nome is like a two or three week commitment. So my wife and my kids were all behind it and I spend the springtime just getting ready for this race. And I go down to Fred Meyers and I buy all this terrible junk food and I bring it home and I hide it because I've got two small children. And when they go to bed at night, I would take all that food out and I would pack it up and I'd put it in these flat rate shipping boxes and I'd ship them out to every village along the trail because that's how you supply yourself with any food. Last week in February, yeah, February comes around when the Iditarod Trail Invitational starts and there's a hundred of us line up on the trail start and we head on down the trail. 2017, I made it 15 days and 700 miles, I made it to Unicleet, and that's right on the Bering Sea coast. And I got there, and I was exhausted, and I was sick, and I was tired, and I felt like a little kid that was looking at the deep end of the pool, and I tried to, like, swim out a little bit, and I realized, like, nah. And I turned around, and I made it back to the edge of the pool, and I went home to Fairbanks. Like, I did not get the Bering Sea coast. I've been here for 20 years, but the, the coast didn't make any sense to me. So I knew in my heart of hearts that I was going to have to go home and convince my wife and family again that next year, 2018, is going to be the year for me. And I was fortunate enough that my wife and my kids, they were all behind it. So I did the same things. I bought the food. I hid the food. I packed the food. I shipped the food. And the last weekend of February comes around, and there's a hundred of us on the start of the Iditarod Trail, and we head on down. Now, in 2017... I realized there's kind of, if you try to go all the way to Nome, you get to experience two different trails, like two entirely different trails. The start of it before, you see the sled dog race, I guess I should say, the sled dog race starts just one week after all of these bikers, skiers, and runners head out on the trail. And you head down the first part of the trail, and it's quiet, it's lonely, it's wilderness, the trail's unmarked, maybe it gets blown in, and every village you go through is just quiet, there's not much going on. But in 2017, I realized eventually the sled dog race catches up with you because they're just going faster. You know, maybe on a bike we'll cover 50 or 100 miles a day, but sled dogs are doing 100, 150 miles a day. So by a week in, two weeks in, the sled dog races start catching you. And certainly by the time you're to the Bering Sea coast, that sled dog race is up with you. The first thing you see is there's going to be the trail breakers coming through, these giant snow machines, and they're just going to lay down wooden trail markers the whole way to Nome. And so suddenly the trail is empty, and now it's just clearly marked all the way. Then after that, you've got the lead dog teams coming through, and there's like ravens floating overhead, picking up all the goodies off the trail that they're dropping. And before you know it, you find yourself just like in this wave of energy where the trail was quiet, and now everything is loud. You go into every village, and it's just loaded with volunteers and veterinarians, and there's dog teams and mushers, and it's smelly, and it's loud, and it's full of life, and it's wonderful and so uniquely Alaskan. So... In 2018, I was really looking forward to this because I didn't get to experience that in 2017. So I knew I had these two parts of trail to really like sink my teeth into. 
We set off down the trail, and maybe two, three days in, I was riding with a couple friends, and at this time I was riding with my friend Phil Hofstetter from Nome, and we're coming down the backside of the Alaska Range through this region called the Farewell Lakes, and Phil had gotten ahead of me, and I'm looking at his tracks, and suddenly his bike tracks turn into a bike track and, and boot tracks, and I'm wondering, well, what's going on here? And it continues on, and then his tracks veer off the trail, and he's out in the burnt-over black spruce trees, and I don't know what's going on. And I come around a corner, and there is Phil standing behind this small clump of burnt-over black spruce trees. And I look over, and 40 feet away, there's two bison. And Phil's having this standoff with these two bison. And then I quickly realize I'm having a standoff with two bison. <laughs> And quickly in my head, I start thinking, oh, God, I hope this is just a story. I hope this is just a story. And sure enough, the bison start to go down the trail. But unfortunately, the reason they're on the trail is all this grass grows along the edges. And the bison are just out there eating it. So they stay along the trail. We keep on going. There's the bison again. Boom, we have another standoff. I don't know if you've had a standoff with bison, but I guarantee you have no idea what to do around bison. Maybe bears or moose or something, you know what's going on, but bison are big, dumb, aggressive animals. And I'm sitting there in my head, I'm thinking, God, I hope this is just a story, I hope this is just a story. And sure enough, they clear off and they continue along the way and it was just a story. Maybe four or five days later, my friend Phil had gotten ahead of me, and now I'm traveling with my really good friend Jay Cable from here in Fairbanks, and we had made it past McGrath, and we're riding through this like endless series of hills from the ghost town of Iditarod to Shaktulik along the Inoko River. It's just up and down these like 300-foot hills. And maybe it's two in the morning, and we're riding our bikes along, and there's this fresh little layer of snow, and I'm riding up this hill following these wolf tracks, which like, isn't that uncommon on the Iditarod Trail. The wolves are everywhere, but you don't encounter them much. So we're riding up this hill, and I'm listening to music, and it's 2 in the morning. I'm trying to keep awake, and all of a sudden, like, the world erupts, and I don't know why my headphones are so loud. And then I hear my friend Jay screaming behind me. And if anyone knows Jay Cable, he never screams, ever. And I quickly know there's something wrong, and this isn't my headphones. No, these are dogs, and they're barking. And I go, no, 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 Kevin, these aren't dogs barking. These are wolves howling. And I quickly, I take my headphones out, and I hear Jay, and he's howling back up at me, and I'm looking back down the tra trail, howling at Jay, and the wolves are howling at us, and Jay and I start to make the slowest getaway ever <laughs> from wolves, and we are riding these, like, 60-pound bikes three miles an hour up the hill, and this time I'm not saying it in my head, and I'm just screaming, I hope this is just a story, I hope this is just a story. And sure enough, Jay and I, we're riding along, we peak the hill, we ride back down, because bikes go fast downhill, and we get to this swamp and we look back with our headlamps to see if we see any glowing eyes looking at us in the distance, and we don't. But a mile away, we can hear this pack of wolves super ticked off that they're woken up in the middle of the night. And it turned out to just be a story. So we continue along. We hit the Yukon River, we're hit with these snowstorms, things are slow, we get to Caltag and we portage over to the village of Unaclete, 700 miles away from the start along the Bering Sea coast. And I'm back there again, and this time I am there with two adults. I've got my friend Jay and I've got my friend Phil. And now I felt confident that I can swim in the deep end of the swimming pool. 
From Unalakleet, the Iditarod Trail still goes another 300 miles to Nome, which even when I've been telling this story, I've been thinking like, good lord, Alaska's so big. And from Unalakleet on, all three of us got to travel together, and it was great. And we headed up to Shaktulik, and we had to wait out a storm to cross the sea ice to, Kalt, uh, to Koyuk, and it wasn't a problem. By this time, also, the dog teams had caught up to us, and I'm experienced the second half of the race. And we go through Koyuk, and we head on over along the coastline to Elam, and over the hills down to Gullivan Bay, and some tailwinds pick up, and they sweep us up into the Fish River and White Mountain Village. And this is the last community along the trail before Nome, just 85 miles before Nome. And this is the section of trail where you find the blowhole. Now, I know I introduced you to it, and let me explain to you what the blowhole actually is. You see, the trail heads right along the beach, heads westward, right towards Nome. And so you've got the open ocean to your left, and to your right, you have these 800,000-foot hills. And these hills just do enough to hold back all this cold air from the interior of the Seward Peninsula. But every once in a while, that cold air will kind of crest over those hills, and it will flush down these river valleys down to the ocean. Kind of like when you're on Alaska Airlines, you go use the bathroom and just, like you flush a toilet, like on an airline, that's the blowhole. And so there's these series of valleys, and you never know which one's being flushed and which one isn't, but there's probably one being flushed at the time. And these are like, it'll go from nothing, dead calm, to 70-mile-an-hour winds like that, and you have no idea. Now, I'd never been through here, but I was traveling with these two adults that had been, so I kind of had an idea. This was the 18th day on the trail. We were in White Mountain. It was the evening time, and we decided we'll eat some dinner, We'll get some rest, and around midnight, we're going to take off for our last 85 miles of the trail. We wake up at midnight, we leave White Mountain, and we drop off the riverbank onto the Fish River, and there on the right is the Iditarod Sled Dog Race checkpoint. And you've got just dog teams lined up, lying down in straw. There's a few of them that are up and barking, and you've got dogs jumping in harness ready to go. You've got other dogs just lying down. And us three on a bike, we just roll away, and we leave the lights of town behind and the sounds of these dogs barking, and it's just wonderful. It's zero degrees, there's no wind, it's clear skies, we see the stars, and we make our way along the trail, and we get into this place called the Topcock Hills, and these hills are totally barren, there's no trees out there, and I know that this is the spot that the blowhole can start, but it's dead calm. And now maybe we're 70 miles from the finish, and I had 15 days on the trail the year before, and 18 days now, I had spent over a month on the trail away from my family over a year, and I'm 1,600 miles in, and I'm thinking, we're going to do this. And we continue along, and I'm looking around, and then suddenly the northern lights come out, and they're dancing around, and I'm all kind of out of it in the middle of the night, because that's what happens, and you're just like, wow. And I'm staring around, and I look over my shoulder, and there's three headlamps a couple miles back that I see just rolling through the hills. And there are these three dog teams that had left White Mountain not long after we did. We continue along, and there's like one last hill in the Topcock Hills, and you drop 500 feet down to the beach. And just before that, these three dog teams, they go right on by us, and they continue along. At the bottom of these hills, there's a shelter cabin, and we had planned on stopping there. But again, the evening was beautiful. 
the skies were clear and the winds were calm. But as we come down from this last hill where you feel so exposed and thinking now I'm in the shelter, I start to feel this small breeze and the bit of willow that's there starts to wave a little bit. And we get down to this, the bottom of the hill, and this is probably totally imagination, but I swear, I got down to the bottom, and I could just stick my hand out in the trail, and someone was flushing that blowhole, and just <laughs> The wind picked up out of the middle of nowhere, and luckily, here we are at this shelter cabin, and the three of us, we gather into this shelter cabin, and we put on all the clothes that we have. And Phil from Nome starts telling me, Kev, just remember, this is the last spot, probably about eight miles long, and at the end of this, there's this place called the Safety Roadhouse, which seems like a pretty apt name from where I'm standing. And he says, by then it should be over. And so we set out, and the cabin's just kind of shaking in the wind, and you can hear the wind blowing through, and we walk outside, and the, surely there's no way we can ride a bike, so we don't even try, and we just start pushing our bikes down the coast of the Bering Sea. We'll be back with more of Kevin Breitenbach's story, The Blowhole, in a moment. This is Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Well, it sure sounds like Kevin is having fun telling that story live on stage at our November 19th, 2022 live event here in Fairbanks, right? If you'd like to try your hand at telling a story on Darkwater Nights, we would love to hear what you've got. Our next live event will be Saturday, March 4th at 7 o'clock p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. We are actively recruiting storytellers for that show right now. I want to let you know that I do coach all of our storytellers to give them some tips on how to get the most out of their stories so you don't have to worry about figuring it all out on your own. And if the idea of telling your story in front of a thousand people or so sounds horrifying, I understand. We're always looking for stories for our radio show and podcast. And for that, you just need to sit down with me one-on-one and I don't bite. Well, okay, I should probably say that I don't bite anymore. The last time that I bit someone was during the Carter administration, so you're pretty safe. You can submit your stories and get tickets to our next live event at darkwinternights.com. When we left Kevin's story, he was just about to enter the dreaded blowhole, an eight-mile stretch of land along the coast of the Bering Sea, during a bike race along the Iditarod Trail while the Iditarod race is going on along that same trail at that same time. Only in Alaska. Here's Kevin. And I've got my head down and my fur ruff is being blown to the side and I can just kind of see out of my left eye just barely. And I think that Jay starts trying to make some kind of joke, but you can't hear anything because these winds are moving like 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. It was so loud. And he's making some joke and I am terrified. And right then I felt like the little kid, you know when you're a little kid and you're in a swimming pool and suddenly your toes can't touch the bottom of the pool and you absolutely panic and then you look at your parents and they're totally fine because they can still touch the bottom? Jay and Phil were my parents, and I was that little kid just like struggling and terrified. 
And so I just follow along with uh, Phil's wheel, and I'm walking right behind him, and I look up, and there's this headlamp coming towards us from Nome, and this is not the right direction. And sure enough, it's one of those dog teams. And he comes up to us, and he's talking to Phil, and again, you can't hear anything that's going on, but I make out, he got turned around. His dogs got totally disoriented, and now suddenly he had no idea he was coming back in our direction. And we help this dog musher, and we get him turned around, we let him know, just keep that wind to your right shoulder, and you'll be going the right direction. And so he continues down the way. That sled is just like dodging and weaving over the ice, and there's snow blowing and dust, and it's loud, and we see him going away, and we never see him again. We keep walking, and we keep walking, and this blowhole may be eight miles wide, and we're about four miles into it, and I'm just behind Phil, and suddenly, boom, I run into his wheel, and he had stopped. And I look up, and he's saying something. I don't know what he's saying, and I look to where his headlamp's pointing, and then I hear, dog team! And I look over to the right, and there's a dog team with 10 dogs hooked up, and they're all just lying down, and there's not a dog musher with them. We take literally one more step and look to our left, and there, dog team! Another 10 dogs hooked up around some, like, some driftwood, and there's a dog sled, and there's no dog musher. And the wind is just screaming, and we can't hear anything, and we kind of start to panic real quick. And I, I look over at this second dog sled, and there on the leeward side of that dog sled are two dog mushers huddled together, holding on to each other, sitting on some sleeping bag. And we start screaming at them, and no one can hear anything, and they're not responding. And we go up, and Phil shakes one of their shoulders, and he pops to life. And he starts panicking and trying to tell us the story. And Phil's yelling back at him, you got to get out of here. You're in the blowhole. Nobody stops in the blowhole. And this guy, Scott, his name's Scott Jansen, a musher. He's screaming back at Phil and telling us the story about, my friend Jim here, he got hung up on the driftwood. He can't move. I lost my gloves. I lost everything. We can't move. I'm not leaving my friend. And Phil's yelling back at him, you need to move. I'm not leaving him. And this whole time, the other dog musher, he's just lying there entirely unresponsive. And so in this whole melee, the musher, Scott Jansen, lets us know. He, he thinks maybe he called for help. He has a satellite phone. And he asked Jay, hey, I, my hands don't work. Get my satellite phone out. I need to call my wife. And so Jay starts digging through his pockets, and he's finding nothing. And I look over, and on his sled dog bag, there I see it, his satellite phone. Like, he had gotten it out right when he showed up and knew that this was an emergency immediately, but never called for help. We pick up his satellite phone, and we walk it over to him, and his wife's number's the first one there, and you just press the green button, and Jay hands him the phone. And again, the wind is just blasting. I can't understand anything he's saying, but I'm kind of trying to make it out. And it takes a bit of time in this like life-threatening situation, and I come to realize, I think I'm listening to a domestic dispute between a husband and a wife. And sure enough, they're yelling back and forth, and I can just imagine myself failing in the exact same way. And Scott ends the phone call with, just call the damn troopers, we're dying out here. <laughs> and that was the end of the phone call. And in this time, I'm just standing there and I am freezing. I don't know what to do, and I'm just trying not to be a liability. The dog mushers and us, we carry these trackers on us, so you can see it online, but all these trackers have a little beacon on them that you can press the SOS button and emergency 
you know, a, an emergency rescue is going to come your way. Scott doesn't know if you ever press that button. Jay finds his tracker, lets him know, you never press the button. Press the damn button! Like, I got to let you know, you're going to be disqualified from the race if I press this button for you. Press the damn button! Jay presses the button, and that's the last thing that I heard, because at the same time, Jay and Phil are seeing me start to freeze, and they say, Kev, get moving. Get down the trail. There's a cabin probably three miles down the trail on your right called Tommy Johnson's Cabin. We'll meet you there. And I get moving because nobody stops in the blowhole. So I'm walking down the trail, and I make my way three miles down the trail to Tommy Johnson's cabin. and by myself. And this is not the cabin I expected. There's no windows. There's no doors. It's totally blown in with snow. So I just crouched behind this place, and I put on the rest of the layers that I had, and I just waited for my friends because I didn't know what I was doing. And a few minutes later, Jay and Phil come up because there's not much else they could do for these mushers, and they know nobody stops in the blowhole. So they continue along, and Jay ends up diving through these snowbanks into the cabin because Jay has this in-reach device, which is like a messaging device. You can send messages with it, but not if you're freezing cold in the wind. So Jay dives into this cabin. Anyhow, and he gets in there and he sends Phil's wife a message that, sa that says, Musher stuck in the blowhole. Send the troopers now. Now, Phil's wife's in Nome waiting for the finish. When they showed up there, we had no idea if there was going to be help along the way for these guys. All we know is that we heard a fight between a husband and a wife and maybe we pressed a button. But nothing was sure. We send out this message and right away we get a message back from Phil's wife saying, Got it. Troopers on their way. And so we decide we need to keep moving on. And so we do, because nobody stops in the blowhole. We keep on walking on, and now the sun starts rising. And I see all these snow machines coming down the trail from Nome. And the first one that comes along, they stop. And it's this musher. Her name's Jessie Royer. She had finished the race maybe a day or two before. And she lets us know. We saw their trackers, and I was super nervous. So she was on her way back to check on the mushers. The next group of snow machines that come on by, that's Gnome Search and Rescue, and they stop and let us know, we're going back, we're going to get the mushers. So we keep on walking, and the wind keeps on blowing, and I'm just wondering when it's going to stop, and it didn't seem like too long later, here comes the snow machines back by us. And there's two mushers on the back of two of them, like rag dolls, making their way to the safety roadhouse, and they're alive. And then after that, there's another snow machine that comes by, and I look out of the corner of my eye, and there's not 12 dogs or 10 dogs hooked up. There's 24 dogs hooked up to one snow machine, tails wagging, <laughs> trotting all the way to Nome, pulling a snow machine instead of pulling a dog sled the rest of the way. And those teams teamed up, and they made their way all the way into Nome. Later in that day, the wind dies down. I mean, the wind died down like that. It was the blowhole, and it really is amazing. The only time I've ever been through here, and we made it to safety, and we made it to Nome, and it turns out that that was just a story, too. But in the end, I learned three lessons that day. I learned, first of all, if you're going to swim in the deep end of a pool, bring an adult. <laughs> Second of all, there's always time to have a fight with your wife. <laughs> and third of all, you never stop in the blowhole. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Kevin Breitenbach. He shared that story at our November 2022 live event here in Fairbanks.
Today's episode of Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska was edited by myself, Rob Prince. Story consultation by Lori Newfield. Have you been listening to our show or hearing people talk about our live events and been wondering what all the fuss is about? Well, you can find out for yourself at our next live event coming up on Saturday, March 4th, 2023 in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. And even better, you could end up being one of our storytellers that night. We would love to hear your true stories from Alaska. Don't worry, I coach all of our storytellers to help them get the most out of their stories. And our audience is just incredibly wonderful. At every show, they pretend to laugh at my dumb jokes just to make me feel better. It's very sweet. Anyway, everything you need to submit your story and get tickets to our March 4th event is available on our website, darkwinternights.com. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.